Welcome to Communities Education Podcast with Martin and Rob. In this episode, we look at GCSE and A-level exam results in the here and now. We look at induction and the early career framework in your working life, and we bust those threshold myths. Yes, so hello once again to the Education Podcast from Community Trade Union. First of all, thanks everyone who subscribes. And if you've not already done so, do let your colleagues know about the podcast uh, and share it with anybody else who you think may be interested. And if you are enjoying it, please do leave us a review on whichever platform you're listening to us on, because it really does help us reach a wider audience and hopefully get some of that important information across to the people who need it the most. If you do want to get in touch with us about anything in today's podcast or any past or future podcasts, you can do so at education policy at community-tu.org and we do love hearing from uh, our members and our listeners so do get in touch about anything uh, you want to hear in future podcasts or anything that you've uh, heard us talk about in previous podcasts. So as Martin said at the start of the podcast in the here and now section this month we're going to be looking at exam results. So Martin since the last podcast we have had A-level and GCSE results And I think the first thing perhaps to touch on is this idea that the government had planned to restore grades to 2019 levels. What does that mean? What what can you tell us about that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Last month, level three and A-level results were published, followed a week later by GCSE and level one and level two vocational results. But the overwhelming news was all about the government's plan to restore grades to 2019 levels. Despite the impact that COVID-19 and recent industrial action has wrought on these students, there has been increasing pressure on the regulator Ofqual to restore A-level and GCSE results to their pre-pandemic levels. Now, this policy that the government have enacted means that grades are similar to 2019, but are around five percentage points lower at grade four, that's equivalent to an old grade C, over 2022 grades. And that means that this year's awards should not and cannot be compared to those that students received during the pandemic. It's important to note, really, really important to note that this doesn't mean that students have performed worse than in previous years, and nor does it mean that staff have prepared them less well. This is a a political decision, uh, and we're worried because it's likely to hit disadvantaged students and those working with those students in some of the toughest schools in the country. It's likely to impact them the hardest. Community have raised concerns about this grade restoration, especially in the light of the more sensitive approaches that have been taken in Wales and Scotland, meaning that students in England appear to be the worst off in the UK. These students this year were the first cohort to have completed a full GCSE course, but did so following a significantly disrupted Key Stage 3, which has caused high levels of anxiety. And we're still seeing uh, significant levels of absence in schools, which obviously isn't going to help those students to achieve the higher grades. So if this year's grades are meant to be returning to pre-pandemic levels, then what happened last year? This return to pre-pandemic grading was a two-year plan. So last year was the first stage in that two-year plan to restore grading to 2019 levels. It was supposed to fall uh, midway, so around about 
50%. And whilst it did lower grades, it only lowered them by around about 30%, leaving the other 70% to be shouldered by students this year. As far as I can tell, I suppose it's likely universities will be aware of this reduction in grades over the course of the last few years and around the pandemic and issues with that. But what about employers? How are they supposed to know if you know, that they shouldn't be comparing those results uh, for potential employees. This is a difficult one. You're right. Schools, universities, everyone has been advised that results will not be as high as last year and that they shouldn't be compared. But that hasn't stopped the stories. That hasn't stopped employers. That doesn't stop people who simply don't understand how the systems work. Let's be honest, it's always dangerous to compare results with previous years because year groups, cohorts, they vary so much. And for this year's A-level and level three students, this is the first time that they've ever sat formal exams. So that as well had an impact. As I mentioned, we're, we're worried about appraisal from an employment perspective. And we, we've, we're very clear that teachers should not be directly held to account for a single set of exam results. The government guidance making data work, which we've mentioned before, states that objectives and performance management discussions should not be based on teacher-generated data and predictions, or solely on the assessment data for a single group of pupils. Therefore, these results should only form a part of the evidence. And we would hope that going forward that employers will always recognise the fact that this year, these last few years, have been affected by the pandemic. And of course, from a student perspective, once these students move on to get their degrees or move on into employment, then the results that they did get at GCSE and A-level, as long as they were sufficient for them to move on and open the door to the next stage, will disappear into the past. Now, suppose there's sort of three kinds of students here, if you'll just bear with me for a second. One is GCSE's students who are not returning to school for any further study. One are A-level students that are not returning to school for further study. And one is GCSE students who are returning to that school for further studies such as A-levels. How are staff and our members advised to support those students if they need some kind of support following their exam results? Sure. So to be clear, uh, students have to remain either in education or employment, such as an apprenticeship, between the ages of 16 and 18. So all students, regardless of whether they were successful or unsuccessful in their GCSEs, do need to remain in some form of uh, education or employment-based training. Um, if they didn't pass any particular GCSE, then there is an option to resit those, and those resits happen um, later on in the autumn around Christmas time. Um, students can, of course, if they want to, retake the entire year and those exams will then be retaken sometime in the summer. Students who have finished their A-levels and who perhaps have not got the grades that they wanted um, have a range of options. The first one is to go into clearing so that they can see if there are any university places which weren't considerations for them, but which um, might be something suitable as an alternative. Of course, it's also possible that the universities might take you even if you haven't got the grades that you were expecting due to this government policy. So it is definitely worth getting in touch with the universities to find out what the situation is before making any decisions. As far as what staff should do, they simply need to make sure that they are available to support the students um, once they return to school 
some staff will be available, of course, between exam results day and the start of school, particularly those in sixth form centres supporting students with uh, clearing results. Um, it's going to be a tough one. It's going to be tough. So you mentioned a few moments ago, quite rightly, Martin, that students uh, must remain in education of some kind until they're at least 18. Um, where do you think that leaves the future of GCSEs? I mean, we've considered even on this podcast a number of times over the last few years what the future of GCSEs could be. And I think as well, uh, you've written articles in the SecEd magazine as well as our own in-house Your Voice magazine. Um, but is there any movement on, on what the future of GCSEs might look like? In short, not really, no. The thing is, it's a really difficult thing. Uh, academic progress is never going to be something which is straightforward to measure. Um, there is a phrase that says that we value what we can measure or do we measure what we what we value? Um, uh, but I think it's it's very difficult. Straightforward exams will always fail to capture the full range of knowledge of every student because they only test on what questions are actually asked. Perhaps now is the time to consider a huge change. I mean, what is the purpose of uh, an exam at 16 when educational training must continue until 18? As you say, we've posed this question before. What does it tell us as educators? What is the value for the learner? I don't have an answer to this. Uh, maybe listeners do, and maybe they would like to uh, write in and, and let us know their thoughts. But here's a final question, I suppose. Is it appropriate? Is it still appropriate in the 21st century for us to be assessing students using 19th century assessment methods? Should we be moving on to something new, something which reflects the wholeness of education rather than focusing on a narrow set of academic measures. I don't have the answer. The discussion is ongoing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think for me, I just don't feel as if GCSEs or A-levels, the way we currently do exams in general, is really reflective of real life. I mean, how often do you not have a computer, the internet available to you to look things up? Do you not? How often do you not have someone else to discuss ideas with and work collaboratively on something, um, even if you work from home. Very few occasions um, is there that sort of level of high stakes. It happens, of course, surgeons maybe being one example, but it's, it's quite rare that in, in most people's jobs that that's the case. So I think there is a, a, an opportunity now for exams to be relooked at. But as you say, I don't, as I sit here recording this, have all the answers. And maybe if uh, any of our members would like to share their thoughts, that would be fantastic. As I said before, we always love hearing from you. And you can do that at educationpolicy at community-tu.org. So that sound tells us that it's time to move on to the second part of our podcast, Your Working Life. Now then, as I mentioned in last month's podcast, we are going to look again at uh, the early career framework and the induction period. Uh, we're trying to obviously look at it at a slightly different angle from last month so we're not repeating ourselves and we are going to try and focus on what the mentor's responsibility is uh, during that period. So before we get going Martin I'm just going to make it super super clear as we did last month that there are sort of three different things here. One is qualified teacher status often known as QTS and you get that after your training. So if you've done a PGC, for example, that course comes with QTS. And that's probably that's how right. you would have seen it listed in the university prospectus. It will have said, uh, I don't know, for example, a three year Bachelor of Education with QTS. The next step is that you must pass induction at the end of year one. 
So you've done one year of teaching and at the end of that first year of teaching, you still must pass induction at the end of that year. That has not been replaced. There is also an early career framework, which is a program of support that lasts two years, which includes that first year. And then there is an additional year of support after that. Okay, so that's three things. QTS, you get with your training. You must pass the induction at the end of your first year. And if you don't, trouble. And you get a framework of support that lasts two years, which includes that first year. Correct so far? Correct so far. Because it is confusing. It, it is confusing. Uh, and, and part of the problem is that we've got this two-year programme of early career support, but we've still got this induction stage, which happens at the end of year one. And teacher standards, the, the things which all teachers are assessed against, teacher standards, they are what will be used to assess an early career teacher's performance at the end of their induction period. And the decision about whether an ECT's performance is satisfactory should take account uh, of the, uh, the work context and should be based on what can reasonably be expected of an ECT. So let's be honest, at the end of a year of teaching, you are not going to be perfect in everything. You'll be better than you were as a brand new straight out of uh, college or straight out of training teacher, but you certainly won't be an experienced teacher. So there'll still be things that you get wrong. Don't worry if there are things that you get wrong. As long as you have done enough to pass induction, you'll be able to continue working in maintained schools. You'll move up on the pay scale, up onto M2, et cetera, et cetera. And you'll move into year two of your teaching career, year two of your early career support. So that is the difference between uh, the induction period, the early career framework. But there are some things that, as you just described, that sort of straddle both, aren't there? So we've got, for example, the mentor. Mm. During the induction period, each early career teacher will be assigned a mentor. But the school as a whole is likely to have a lead, a tutor who leads on the early career teaching induction in that school. Yes, that's right. That's right. So every school is required to have an induction tutor. And that person is the one that will do the formal observations. That person is the one that will ultimately make the decision about whether a early career teacher has completed their induction period and whether they've completed it successfully. The mentor's role is to be a support. So that means that they could do some observations, but they will be more to do with coaching and supporting you and helping you to improve. It's the induction tutor that will do the formal observations that will make the decisions about whether or not you are able to proceed in your career as a teacher. So let's talk about the mentor's role. Now, it can straddle those both those two years for the early career framework, but let's talk about their role then. Now, it's important to remember that your mentor or the mentor of an early career teacher may change for a number of reasons. Maybe your mentor uh, ends up going off sick for a period of time um, or on maternity leave, paternity leave, or you move schools. So your mentor may change during that period of time, but you should always have a mentor whilst you're in those two years of, uh, of support. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest, it was always a good idea to have a mentor as a new teacher. It was always a way that the school could provide that necessary support. All the mentor programme, which is part of the early career framework does, is formalise that. 
and it makes sure that schools are funded to allow you to have time off timetable to spend with your mentor to develop and make sure that you are improving as a teacher. Now, it's important to say here and now, we've talked about uh, induction and how important it is to pass that. But let's just remind you, you cannot fail your ECF based training because this is a program of support. It's a development tool. It's not an assessment tool, so you can't fail this. Um, but it is a good idea for early career teachers to engage fully with this training in order to make sure that they develop as, as fully as possible. And uh, it's probably worth checking out last month's podcast for further details about the early career framework from the trainee teacher's perspective. Rob, you just mentioned uh, about everyone having a mentor, and you're absolutely right. It doesn't have to be just one mentor. It could be several mentors, particularly if you move schools. The mentor's role is to support their early career teacher through these two years of induction. And the responsibilities of the mentor include working with the school to make sure that the early career teacher receives a high quality induction, meeting regularly to provide support and feedback, providing or arranging coaching uh, particularly if it's around specific phases and subject areas, taking prompt appropriate action if there are any difficulties. And if the school chooses to work with a training provider, um, the mentor will receive training on how to support early career teachers. Now, anyone can be a mentor, can't they? The ideal people are those who are going to be present and those who are able to provide and model the sort of qualities that the school is looking for. That doesn't mean that you can't be a mentor if you're part time. But if you are on capability proceedings, it probably does mean that you are not suitable at that time to be a mentor. There is training available if you want to be a mentor. Training is funded by the Department for Education and your school will need to work with a training provider to get that training sorted. The funding covers 20 hours of a mentor's time in the second year to work in collaboration with the early career teacher. If, however, a school chooses to take a provider-led approach, there is additional funding to allow mentors to train for 36 hours over the two-year early career induction period. Mentor training does take two years normally, and you can do this ready to work with ECTs or in your second year of training whilst you are already working with one if your school uses an outside training provider. The sorts of skills uh, that will be developed as part of this training are uh, how to assess teacher progress, how to provide effective feedback, how to use deliberate practice to accelerate pupil progress, and how to provide further challenge to high performing early career teachers. Mentors will also have the opportunity to learn from experts as part of this early career training program. Through half-termly online or in-person seminars, they discover the best ways to reflect on their practice and develop their instructional and coaching skills. So what does a mentor ECT interaction look like? Is there a set thing or, or can a school adapt uh, their approach? Yes, yeah, so there is a set thing. Um, there is a, a, a series of resources and materials that are provided. And we have had some conversations with the DfE about this as we've had feedback from mentors and early career teachers that the current model is too prescriptive. It doesn't always seem to address the concerns of the ECT at the time they arise. However, mentoring is bespoke. So the mentor is able 
to put in some support for the teacher to address those issues themselves, depending on the need of the ECT. Interaction in year one is weekly. And like I said, it uses instructional coaching as a basis. And in year two, those meetings become fortnightly. Uh, the guidance and support which is provided by uh, the training provider is, is supposed to be sequenced to run alongside the modules of the early career framework. Uh, and like we've said, um, one of the things that we've been in discussion with the DFE to consider is whether some of those modules can be delivered in a slightly different way, uh, either in a different order, or maybe you can run some modules concurrently in order to ensure that needs are met at the time that the issues arise. So finally, Martin, if we have any ECTs listening or any mentors listening who are concerned or have worries about the process um, or the way it's being managed in their school, who should they talk to in the first instance in their school? So in the first instance, ECTs who are having difficulties, any sort of difficulties, should approach their mentor. If their mentor can't help, or perhaps if the issue is to do with the mentor, the next person to approach would be the induction tutor. Ultimately, the person within the school who has the greatest responsibility um, is the head teacher. So if you are unable to approach your mentor or your induction tutor, please do feel that you can speak to either one of the deputies or the head teacher in school to try and have your concerns addressed. Of course, alongside that, do get in touch with us here at Community because we can provide you with one-to-one -one support and guidance and advice about who is the right person to speak to and we can support you should issues arise. If you are in the position where you're not sure who your mentor is or who the lead tutor is, that's also an issue and go and speak to the head teacher as soon as possible or a member of the senior leadership team if it's quite a large school, as soon as possible to get that ironed out. Don't leave it too long or, or leave it at all really in your first few days in your new job and good luck. Right, finally then, moving on to our last section of the podcast, which is, as always, Mythbusters. Boo! That might be your best one yet, uh, so <laughs> that's really good. Let, 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 let's try and keep that up. Okay, so, Martin, uh, as always, I'm going to give you a, um, a, a sentence, something that's um, uh, commonly said in schools or in workplaces, and it may or may not be a myth. You're going to tell us if it is or not, and if it is, you're going to bust that myth and tell us what the facts are. So... To move from the main pay scale to the upper pay scale, from MPS to UPS, I have to go through, air quotes, threshold. Yes. Okay, there we go. Is excellent. That enough? Uh, <laughs> the end. Uh, <laughs> we'll be back next month. <laughs> All right, let's go through a little bit more detail. So threshold is this division between the main pay range and the upper pay range, main pay scale, upper pay scale, for qualified classroom teachers. So the main pay scale is M1 to M6 and the upper pay scale is U1 to U3. And the concept of threshold was first described in the 1998 Government Green Paper. And teacher pay was substantially uplifted by the then Labour government, but with some caveats. One being that pay would be capped at the top of M6 unless teachers chose to move through the threshold and the system was formally introduced around about 20 years ago in September 2000. Okay so that was a, a while ago now is it still called threshold officially or is there a different name for it do people use different terms? 
no, I get what you're, I get what you're asking. Yes, it, it is still officially called Threshold. The school teachers pay and conditions document still refers to teachers on the upper pay range as post threshold teachers. But the process of moving to the upper pay scale is formally referred to as an application to be paid on the upper pay range. OK, so that's got a word in there then perhaps that leads us on to my next question. Application. So if a teacher who is currently being paid on M6 wants to move onto the upper pay scale, what do they need to do to make that happen? So according to the school teachers paying conditions document, qualified teachers can apply to be paid on the upper pay scale once a year in line with their school's pay policy. And then the school or relevant body uh, needs to assess the application and make a determination again in line with the pay policy on whether the teacher meets the necessary criteria. And the criteria are listed at 15.2 in the school teachers paying conditions document. And they state that an application will be successful as long as the relevant body is satisfied that a teacher is highly competent in all areas of the relevant standards and that the teacher's achievements and contributions to an educational setting or settings are substantial and sustained. So I've mentioned there the pay policy a couple of times because it's necessary for a school to have a pay policy that sets out the process for teachers to apply and uh, a process for those applications to be assessed and make clear how the school will make a decision on those applications. Okay, I think that's really important because I know certainly from my own experience, we have had several members in the past, probably several a year really, uh, who call us up with the issue of not being moved onto UPS for some reason. So what's really important then, what I'm taking from what you've just said, is that the the body, m the school really, uh, must have a policy which sets out how someone should apply to move to UPS and what criteria they'll be using to assess their application. Yeah, absolutely. There is no automatic progression from the main scale onto the upper pay scale. There has to be an application and the school, your employer, has to explain what that application process looks like. The school teacher's paying conditions document doesn't specify, it, it just simply says that you need to apply. And that could be as simple as writing a letter to say that you wish to be considered to move up. Some schools, some employers have a more detailed application process that needs to be completed and gone through. Um, so it's definitely worth checking with your school exactly what it is that you need to do if you're on M6 and you are planning on moving onto the upper pay scale, find out exactly what it is to make sure that you meet those criteria. I'm not asking necessarily here for direct examples unless you, you have them and you really want to give them. But presumably there are some things that we would consider to be unrealistic expectations to be moved, to, you know, uh, be placed on people uh, who are trying to move from the main scale to the upper pay scale. So according to the school teachers paying conditions document, there are no additional responsibilities that automatically become yours simply by moving from the main scale onto the upper pay scale. Indeed, those who are employed on the upper pay scale usually have the same contractual duties as as, as a newly qualified teacher, an early career teacher that we were talking about earlier in this episode. They are primarily employed as a classroom 
teacher. In some schools, though, staff are expected to take on whole school responsibilities or to take on work which looks outside of their subject area to have this whole school impact. Um, these things are not necessarily bad things in and of themselves, but as I said, there is nothing in the school teacher's pay and conditions document that makes these demands. And similarly, when someone makes it onto the upper pay scale, some schools will only allow progression every other year because they claim that this allows staff to show substantial and sustained contributions. I agree that it absolutely does allow staff to show substantial and sustained contributions, but it doesn't mean that you can't show substantial and sustained contributions in a shorter period of time. It doesn't have to be uh, a two year programme. And again, the STPCD places no such restrictions on how long before staff can move from upper pay scale one to two to three, etc. Well, it doesn't say that you need to have shown sustained and significant contributions whilst you've been on U1, does it? So you could, whilst you're on U1, say, well, I have continued whilst on U1 to make a significant and sustained contribution to the school as I was doing beforehand and therefore deserve, according to the school's own policy, to move to U2. I think that is a valid argument. Obviously, you would need to check your school's pay policy to uh, see whether that is an argument that is worth making because some schools simply state that progression through the upper pay scale will be every other year and if that is the case they are quite within their rights to follow their own pay policy. So if you're moving from one school to another at any time but including in that period where you're trying to move from MPS through the threshold to the UPS should the new school you're moving to honour the contribution you've made to the last school and put you on the upper pay scale? We as community would say yes, that they should honour that contribution. We as community would say that any new employer should look at the person that they are employing, look at the pay range, the pay point that they're currently on, recognise the experience that they bring with them and show uh, that recognition through the pay scale. However, according to the STPCD, pay portability no longer exists. Paragraph 15.4 makes clear that any decision applies only to employment in that same school. So if you apply for threshold in one school, it isn't a given that you will be able to take that upper pay scale with you when you move to a new employer. I do think it's worth saying though, whether you're moving schools in the summer between M1 and M2 or any other period right up to what we're talking about with moving from the main scale to the upper pay scale and through threshold, that ultimately it is worth requesting that this is a condition of your move to the new school, condition of joining that new school should you be offered the job. Because why should you lose out just because you're moving the employer, which might be for a whole host of reasons, and ultimately, shy bands getting out. If you don't ask, you don't get. So it's definitely worth talking about that and asking uh, your new employer to honour the progress you've made and to move you on to the next point, wherever that is. And on that note, I think that's another myth busted. Oh, for me. Boom! I knew I had to get you one day. <laughs> that's my line. You stole that. Anyway, it's nice to have done a boom. 
So with all that wrapped up then for another month, it only remains for us to say the usual information at the end. First of all, as I've mentioned several times, if you do want to get in touch with us directly, the best way to do that is on the email address Education policy at community-tu.org. You can follow us on social media for news, shared content, and resources. We're on Facebook, Twitter, which is now called X, and on Instagram. For any help and advice, uh, if you are a member, then visit our website, which is www.community-tu.org, where you can check out frequently asked questions, our advice centre, and uh, information sheets on different subjects. If you're a member and you need casework support, then please do contact your regional team, use the contact us button on our website or call the service centre on 0800 389 6332. And finally, this is the last podcast with Rob as the host, as he's going to be leaving community for Pastors New later this month. I'm sure you will all join with me in wishing him all the best for the future. Thank you, Martin. It's been an absolute pleasure doing the podcast with you, as always, and I shall genuinely miss it greatly. And I hope people continue to listen to whatever format it takes in the future. And on that note, I hope you'll still join me next month for another education podcast. Mm